Our study this morning is in 1 John, the first epistle of John, chapter 5. We began to look at the fifth chapter last week. I'm going to pick up the reading at the very beginning of the fifth chapter and read on through verse 5 and set the context, really, for what we'll be looking at today. So, the first epistle of John, near the end of the New Testament, and chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God who has spoken. And that in your love and grace you've made what you've said accessible to us. You've superintended getting it into print. You've brought it so that we have such free access to it. And not only that, but you tell us that your Holy Spirit becomes our teacher, the illuminator of our hearts. And so, Lord, in the time we have together, we pray for that enlightenment of our hearts, that we would understand what you've said intellectually at the deepest level of who we are. And, Lord, we would recognize how it's meant to work out. And then we would find enablement in our obedience from your Holy Spirit and being obedient to what you've said. Give us alertness of mind this day, and guide our time, I pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5, just by quick review for you, opened up with reminding us of two critical lessons about love, and that word love, a translation of the Greek word agape, or a form of the Greek word agape. And of course, agape is one of, is a very distinctive type of love. The English word love covers a, a multitude of definitions, of course. But agape is that Greek love that is defined in 1 Corinthians 13, the classic love chapter that people have read at weddings and so forth. That is the Greek word agape. Uh, that is in contrast to various forms of the Greek word phileos, which has to do with affection, generally family affection and that sort of thing. Uh, a much more feeling-oriented, although not solely feeling, but a much more feeling-oriented kind of thing. The word agape is not a feeling-oriented word in the Greek. It is reference to selflessness, which is why if you read through 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, kind, long-suffering, and so forth, that begins to make sense, and you see, okay, well, this isn't talking about affection, talking about something deeper, a selflessness toward other people. Anyway, what God told us, and God was reminding us about here, is that he, in response to our repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and being made new creations, adopted into his very family, that he has chosen to pour his agape into our hearts. That's one of the outcomes of salvation. Why is that so important? Because no human being possesses agape naturally. It is not innate to the human race. It comes from God only. Now, the human race can conceive of it. 
we, it's certainly not outside the scope of our thinking ability to say, I can conceive of selflessness, putting the needs of other people above your own. You don't have to be a believer to do that. What you have to do is to have, be a believer to be able to do it with any kind of consistency. Because it's needing from God something we don't have in our own lives. Now, when God pours this agape into the life of the believer, not something they've generated up or deserved, just simply an act of grace from God, God uses that agape in us to transform relationships with people, particularly relationships within the church, which is the main focus of chapters 3, 4, and 5, interpersonal relationships in a church, among the believers who are part of a family with one another. God wants us to use his agape to love, in that sense, the brothers and sisters in the Lord. And again, he's not challenging us to have affection, although there are places in the New Testament where he challenges us to have a form of phileos for people and deepen in our affection, family affection for people. It's not like that's wrong. But the word agape is not that. Agape is selflessness. So he says, I want you to express selflessness toward the brothers and sisters. And he ended that opening of the fifth chapter in the verses I read to you, first couple of verses anyway, with three key signs that agape actually is growing in us. Not that it's present in us. That happens whether we like it or not. God pours it into our heart in response to our conversion, in response to our new life. But how do we know it's growing? And he says, first of all, you know it's growing because you begin to show agape toward God. People say, well... We need to love the Lord our God. Yes, we do. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you know, in the, in the New Testament and in the Gospels, that particular verse is the Greek word agape. Pretty hopeless situation, isn't it, if people innately don't have it? <laughs> it's like, well, this is, what, this is the primary requirement for relationship with God. Well, I don't have it, but I can conceive of it. And what I also can conceive is how dismally short of it I fall. You know, So it's kind of a dismal place for people to be. God says, listen, after you come to know Christ as Savior, I'm pouring this into you. And one of the ways it will begin to express itself is you'll start to be able to love me the way the greatest commandment implied. That you would be able to start responding to me out of all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength with the selflessness rather than the selfishness that is characteristic of humanity. You will be able to have selflessness toward God. That's why it is the greatest command. So basically, if you're saying, what does agape toward God mean? It means Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's what it means. Uh, put him first place. Somebody says, well, I love God. If they mean by that that they've got feelings of affection sometimes, well, who am I to dispute? But if people say, I love God in the sense of what God's really looking for, I'm saying he's not looking for the affection. Uh, that will come. He's looking for selflessness, putting his need above your need, his purpose and call above yours. Secondly, he said, the way that you will be demonstrating this agape, again by review from last week, is that you will be showing surrender in obedience to his word. Agape toward God is ultimately shown by keeping his commandments. If we say, well, I love you, Lord, but then we back away from keeping his commandments, the words are empty. It's not agape. God says, no, uh, if you love me, you'll do what I say. 
By the way, that isn't just in 1 John. You can start in the Gospels and go through the whole New Testament and almost every epistle in one form or another says that. If you say you love me and you don't do what I say, it's not true. You know, or if you love me, you'll do what I say. It's framed differently, but it's the same idea in the New Testament. God says, listen, if you love me, then you're going to keep my word. By the way, just I mentioned this last week. I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating. The Great Commission passage of Matthew chapter 28, which sets up the marching orders for the church age for us as people, is that we are to go into all of the world... Of course, you remember that, <clears throat> and we're seeking to do that <laughs> here and with our missions. He says, making disciples. He doesn't use the word evangelism, can't make a disciple till they've been saved, so evangelism is an understood word. But I think it's by design he doesn't use it there, because he wants to underscore for the church, the issue isn't simply evangelism. The issue is trying to do something with those who respond to the gospel. So you're involved in making disciples. And so you say, well, what does that mean exactly, Lord? Well, he tells us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Why? Because that's what love of God means. (laughs) You observe what he commands you. you. You pay attention to the Bible. You become biblical and obedient in the things that God has to say. That's what you are as a disciple. Nobody's a disciple because they pick and choose what they're going to do with God. Nobody's a disciple because they say, well, my, my motives were good. Yeah, but God says, if your motives are good, your behavior's terrible. I mean, wait, wait, this is supposed to be a match-up here. Are you obeying me? Are you keeping my word? In order to make disciples, we have to teach them to observe all of the... We don't do that to save them, they're already saved. We do that to help them grow. You can't grow if you're not doing that. So agape is going to be shown up by obedience to the word. And then determining in our dealings with brothers and sisters, and this is where we ended last week, to be biblical toward them. To truly love someone with agape love means more than to have affection for them. It means I'm committed to dealing with them according to God's word. Because God defines what is loving and what isn't loving. We do a dismal job of that. One of the things that's occurred to me over the years is people can do two different things, and both of them profess that they were doing it out of love. Thinking, well, they may well be doing it out of affection, and that just leads to chaos. But God doesn't leave us in that confusion. God says, if you love someone, agape, you'll act this way. What's that? Biblically, you'll act biblically toward them. The scriptures tell us what is loving. God doesn't say, this is your guess. You know, go off and stare at your navel and say, what would Jesus do? No. What kind of garbage is that that has disrupted the church? No. No, you say, well, what would Jesus do? I better look in here and see what he would do. And if I look in here and see what he does, then I know that's what God wants me to do. Do you follow the point? This isn't a subjective assessment. This is trying to understand what God has taken the trouble to reveal. You say, well, therefore I know I can do this. And I can only really be loving someone if I'm treating them biblically. No, I can have affection and treat somebody badly. You know, 
over the years in different marriage counseling, somebody could say, well, I have affection for you. I'm sorry I was unfaithful to you, but I really have affection for you. Brothers and sisters, uh, they may well have had affection, probably have more regret now than affection, but nonetheless, that, what does that mean? The love words are empty and crash to the ground because we know, well, it's got to be backed up by something. <laughs> People know intuitively that emotion is not enough for them. And God says agape is more than emotion. It's a commitment to selflessness, to being biblical. By the way, the truth of the matter is, to be biblical towards someone may be perceived as being unloving by them. The world doesn't define love the way God does. People's standards are very different from God's. And I might be dealing with somebody in what is ultimately an agape form, loving them, and they're saying, you're not loving us at all. And by the way, therein is the great challenge for believers in our current era. Because a lot of people come back and say, well, that's not very loving. You know, what, God would, what Jesus would do is be to love us. And my response to that is, you're exactly right. But he defines what love is. Jesus isn't just going to be affectionate. <laughs> He's defining what love is. And love when you carry it out, can be something that is not making the other person very happy. I've seen all kinds of things done that break the heart of God in dealing with other people that people justify because they had affection for somebody. Do you really believe that will stand the test at the judgment seat of Christ as believers we appear before him and he looks that... Well, he said affection for them. So God will say, well, let me get this straight. You had affection for them, so you did something that was ultimately hurtful to them. Is that what you're telling me? Well, it's not what I meant to tell you, but I guess that is what I'm telling you. He says, it's empty. Empty. Would he stumble there? You know, let's, let's go on. What, what did you do that really made a difference? You know, biblical. Biblical. Oh, Gary, settle down. Let's move on. Okay, let's, let's continue building on this particular point because we get into verse 3, and he says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's where we ended last week. He says, And his commandments are not burdensome. Obeying agape, carrying out agape, carrying out, which in turn means carrying out the commands of God. God says something almost astounding. He says, This is not going to be burdensome to you. And why I say that's astounding is because that's not our first response at all. (laughs) We look at that and say, oh, man, you know, this way down, quick, you know. I'm weighed down by that reality. Agape requires that I keep God's commandments, that I, I act biblically toward people and toward life, by the way, I may add. Uh... I need to be selfless toward God, surrendered to Him. I need, I need to be selfless toward people, selfless. And, and thinking about that, we say, well, this is, this is a bit of a struggle. I don't want to ask for a show of hands here, but nonetheless, you know, we look at it and so say, that's, that's a bit of a struggle here, Lord. <laughs> that's, that's pretty tough. Uh, why? Because we know, according to Romans 7 and other places, that our flesh, which is at work in our members of our body, is warring against our new heart. It doesn't want to do what God wants us to do. So that's a struggle, isn't it? A very real struggle. 
Secondly, we already know by definition that the world hates God and, and the ways of God, and therefore the world isn't going to be happy with you acting biblically. The world is going to be happy with you defining love differently than they do. And so that's going to create social pressures and maybe more at times that we face in our life. This is the reality of it. This is the struggle. And I look at it and I say it creates a very perplexing comment from God. He says, my, uh, my commandments are not burdensome. I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I don't know. I don't know, Lord. Uh, seem pretty burdensome to me sometimes, you know. And, uh, but God says, my commands are not burdensome. The word burdensome translates the Greek word baros, which literally means weighty. It was used in the Greek language to describe something that was pressing down on someone, using in a physical sense, where they, they were being bowed over because they were trying to carry too much, you know. You know, one of the ways they would know somebody was at a point in the service where they needed to be is when they could wear the full pack and go ahead and do the work. Nobody did that hardly early. <laughs> that was something you build up to. Uh, weighed down. He says, my commands don't weigh you down. My commands don't weigh you down. The people come back and say, well, they seem to weigh me down. <laughs> they seem to weigh me down, Lord. Uh, uh, Sometimes I think they may be sort of almost oppressive. You know, your commands being biblical, I mean, doesn't that take away fun and happiness and good times, you know, in, in this world? Doesn't that do that? And, uh, and yet God comes back and repeats them and says, well, in case you didn't hear, uh, my commands are not burdensome. You say, well, I thought you said that. <laughs> You're not changing your tune, are you, God? No, 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 here it is. My, my commands... They're not burdensome. In fact, Jesus earlier had said that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Listen to this. He says, Come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And he says, For my yoke is easy. And here's the word used in First John. And my burden is light. You say, well, God, is this one of those sort of wishful thinking things, you know, Christians say, and maybe sometimes you say, you know, you put it on plaques, and nobody really believes that's going to be true, but it feels good to believe it or something, you know, is that, is that the way this is, or is this something real? Is this, does God mean it when he says this? How can it be true? particularly in light of that obvious struggle we have with obedience, particularly in light of the opposition I talked about from the world around us, you can be guaranteed that as the believers at Ephesus and throughout Asia Minor were receiving the first circulation of this letter sent by Paul or sent by John, they would have been saying to one another, is this really true? <laughs> How can this be true? Just like every believer who's honest about it, from the very beginning of the church until our current moment, should be asking themselves the same question. If they're trying to take God's word seriously. It's like, well, can this really be true? I mean, this seems so disconnected from what my life is and from what, what the world is like. And so God, understanding that question was going to be there, 
that it wouldn't be enough for us to simply hear him say, this is the truth, that we'd want to come back and say, well, explain a little bit more why it's the truth, you know. Uh, it should just be enough for us to hear God say, this is the truth. We ought to say, well, yeah, you know more than I do. I'll just trust you. But while that would be wonderful, let's say it's not the normative response for us. <laughs> and we, the more we grow, the more perhaps normative it becomes. That's not how we start out. It's like, well, convince me, you know. I'm from Missouri, let me see it, you know. <laughs> I, I want to know what's going on, you know. And so God answers it in mercy now. He doesn't have to. That's what strikes me about these verses today. He doesn't have to answer any of this. He should say, hey, I said it. That settles it. That'll be enough for you. And if it's not, we need to go for a walk. You know, <laughs> we'll talk about that. But he doesn't. In mercy, he says, I'll, I'll give you some answers. I'm going to give you three reasons why my commands are not burdensome to you. And that ought to perk up our ear. Say, well, well, three reasons? <laughs> of course, the other side of that is, the more reasons you know why God's word is true, the more difficult it is and you're rebellious against it, because now you even have less reason than ever. You know, but uh, we'll, we'll take the chance. Okay, let's move forward. God says, hey, there's three reasons. Number one, God's commands are not burdensome. They don't weigh you down. My commands to you don't weigh you down. Because of this miracle, that your acceptance with me is not ultimately based on whether you're keeping the command or not. That's the miracle for the new covenant believer. The fact of the matter is, the redeemed child of God, when they approach the question of obedience, they're not approaching it from the standpoint of how do I gain salvation or how do I keep salvation. They're approaching it from the standpoint of how do I grow as a disciple. And those are dramatically different directions. And when you mix them up, you undercut the assurance God wants to give his children. We are children of God now if we've responded to the gospel. We're not trying to become his children by obeying him. We're trying to please him by obeying him, but we're not trying to become his children. We're already his children. Remember John, the third chapter of 1 John? <laughs> what a wonder it is. We're, already, we're, we're God's children now when we've responded to the gospel. We're his children now. The new covenant has freed us from having to earn relationship with God or keep relationship with God by our actions. It's tied to our faith, repentance and faith in the gospel. God says, listen, my commands are not burdensome to you because under the old covenant they were very burdensome because you knew my standards and you didn't live them. And you had no excuse. And you, like everyone else, was a sinner and lost as a consequence. Very burdensome place to be. Because you're not there anymore. That's who you used to be. Now, you're accepted in the Beloved. The perfect life of my Son has been credited to your account. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You have a future and a hope. Yeah, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant trying to work my way to God, that was a pretty major, heavy burden. It's the way the Scripture describes it. But God says, listen, that's not the truth anymore. The old cycle, Hebrews 10, talks about how they go over and over and over and over again, the sacrifices and all of the things, and none of them from year to year really solve the problem lastingly for anybody. 
and you had to keep on keeping on. When uh, in Matthew chapter 4 and talking about the Pharisees in, in, in their teaching, it said you were laying, verse 24, it says they lay heavy burdens, they tie them up, hard to bear things, and they put them on people, and then they don't help them carry it. In other words, they tell people, well, if you want to be, if you want to be right with God, then, then you've got to do this. And the people come back and say, I can't do that. And they say, tough. You know, that's what you got to do. Instead of coming back and saying, well, God, yeah, I know you can't. I couldn't either. Isn't it wonderful that somebody did? Jesus Christ, who died for us, and you can turn to him in repentance and faith, and his perfect life will be granted to you. The Pharisees didn't tell anybody that. They just said, well, here's God's standards. What does that do to people? Buries them. Who could possibly hold their head up before God if they knew his standards? It's like, well, I'm lost. You know, I'm lost. Even if I was perfect from here on in, I'm already lost. What do I do about all that other time where it wasn't? And the fact is, I know I won't be perfect from here on in. Do you really see that your life, either back then or currently now, gives you any reason to have hope about God's acceptance of you? That's only because you're deceived. I have nothing in my life currently that's any reason for me to have confidence God accepts me, except for the fact that I've repented and believed. I come before him and say, well, I've got nothing, nothing before you, ultimately, except Jesus and him crucified. I throw my lot on him. You know, that, that's what I hope in. That's the foundation of my life. Not any righteous things I'm trying to do dismally. Uh, no, it's him. That's why Romans 5.1 is so wonderful. Therefore, we have peace with God at long last. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. So he says, well, my, my commands are not burdensome to you. Praise God. They're not burdensome because I no longer have to follow them to be saved. And I no longer have to follow them to stay saved. Like I was saved today, get kicked out tomorrow. You know, no, no. That's not what God's doing. It's not how he approaches it. And he say, okay, well, that's, that's a good reason, you know. All right, that's, that changes the picture a little bit. And he says, there's another reason. He says, everyone who's born of God, verse 4, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? God's commands are not burdensome for the believer because we've been born anew. God's changed our heart the deepest level of who we are. We are a new creation. It's changed us at the deepest level. In Romans 7, in verse 22 and 23, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You know, at the deepest level now, I delight in the law of God. No unbeliever ever, 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 ever said that. They may have said, I'd like to, at the deepest level of who I am, love your word and want to be it. But no, no, no. No one could ever say that without being made a new creation. That which was dead is now alive. Deepest level, this is what I want. But he says, I see another law at work in the members of my body. They're fighting against this thing. But I'm changed in the inner man. The deepest level has changed. What's that mean practically? God says, well, it changes the discussion of burdensomeness because now 
to align with my word and to obey my word matches up to the deepest desire of your life. I mean, underneath whatever warfare is going on in the members of your body, the deepest level of you wants to align with me. Whereas in the unsaved days, the deepest level of you wanted to align with sin and with the world and with the enemy, not with God. So the the equation has changed, you see. Something dramatic has happened. And he says, this removes some of the burdensomeness of it. Because now, when you align with me, you satisfy the deepest piece of you, rather than contest the deepest piece of you. And he says, a side outcome of that is this. You know what is burdensome to you now? You say, well, no, Lord, tell me. What's burdensome to me now? He says, what's burdensome to you now is the grief you feel when you fail. When you do not live surrendered to me. When you do not draw upon the grace I'm so readily willing to give to you. It grieves you in a way it never did before. The thing that's burdensome to you now, because I've worked a miracle in you, is to not be growing. That's the burden. That's the burden. You say, well, Lord, that that, that would require a miracle. He said, well, yeah. See, you're catching it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it did require a miracle. That's why if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have become new. The old has passed away. That's the wonder. He says, I've changed things. So now my commands are not burdensome to you, number one, because you don't have to follow them in order to be saved or stay saved. And number two, now my commands will align with the very core center of who you are now because I've made you a new creation. And he says, but that's not all. He says, there's a third reason. My commands are not burdensome. Because in Christ, sin's power has finally been broken over you. And, and, I've allowed my Holy Spirit to indwell your life. And give you a strength you didn't have before. And he says, listen, everyone born of God has overcome the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He says, listen, as my redeemed children, because of the gospel, you're now actually overcomers. Overcomers. Not oppressed people. Overcomers. Interesting word, by the way. Nikeo in the Greek. You say, why Why is that interesting? Well, it's transliterated into our contemporary language by the word Nike. N-I-K-E. And you know that that whole brand is built around the idea of the goddess of victory. That's that's where that brand comes from. That's the word used here. He says, "I've, I've changed the equation, guys. I've changed the equation. Now, you're an overcomer. Now, you're Nikeo. You're an overcomer. Now, you can gain victory over temptation. Will you do it 100% of the time? No. But not because you couldn't. But because we're still stumbling and growing. But now, at least you can. Couldn't before. 
Now you can. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except it's common to man. God won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able now as his child, but with the temptation will provide a means of escape whereby you may be able to endure it. He says, you're an overcomer now. You're an overcomer now. And you're an overcomer because I gave you a new heart. And you're an overcomer because I gave you the indwelling Holy Spirit. You didn't have either pre-salvation. You have both post-salvation. Therefore, we can labor, obey, fight the good fight, uh, which is the image of Nike, actually. Uh, Fight the good fight with his power and the miracle of our new birth. That's why in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says this, For to this I toil, he's talking about his ministry and his life of obedience, doing the things for the purpose of God. He says, to this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he so powerfully works within me. Do you see that combination? He says, yeah, I'm obedient, I'm, I'm toiling, I'm, I'm making the effort, I'm seeking to live and overcome, and I'm doing it in my obedience with his energy which so powerfully works in me. Boy, did he get it right. That's why the equations changed. Why his commands are not burdensome in the way they had been before. I was thinking of Philippians 4.13 in this regard. Paul says, after talking about how he faced all kinds of different circumstances, he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, you take away him who strengthens me, I don't think I can face much of anything. But, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so God says to there and says now in First John, he says, listen, the equation's changed. There is one who strengthens us now in the task. And all of this is rooted in our repentance and faith in the gospel. We're not overcomers because we happen to be building a lot of religious disciplines or because we've gone through a lot of religious rituals. We're not overcomers because we're such good guys. Heaven forbid. <laughs> what do we have apart from Christ? I mean, we're overcomers because we serve a gracious God. He says, you're my child now. I've done some really remarkable things to make my commands no longer burdensome to you. I want you to obey them. You're going to show you love me by obeying them and carrying them out, but now you're going to do it with a new heart. You're going to do it with new strength because the Holy Spirit's going to be living within you. And we're going to be able to move forward. Not the impossible task of the old covenant, but the very possible achievable victory of overcoming in the new. So how you doing? with the burden of obeying his commands. I mean, that's what it's about. Remember, that's the understood response here. How are you doing with it? Is it helping your faith to know that it was faith, not works, that saved you? Is it helping you to know that it's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not your works, that keeps you saved? Is it helping you to know that God has changed your heart, made you a new creation? You're not who you once were. 
Is it helping you to know that God promises you strength in the battle? Indwelling Holy Spirit? God says it's supposed to. So that when I tell you, as I do in verse 3, his commands are not burdensome, I mean it. They're not meant to be weighing you down. I've changed core variables in the equation. I keep using that terminology because I can't get rid of my math background and engineering background. You know, I think in terms of equations. That's just the way it is. You have to put up with that sometimes. But anyway, he, he, he has changed core variables in this thing. And because of his gracious, merciful thing, we can be Nikeo. We can be overcomers. If I'm an overcomer, it doesn't seem quite so burdensome anymore, does it? That's his point. That's his point for us. So everything seems to revolve, doesn't it, around whether that decision to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in his work on the cross, really, because that's the variable, that's the fulcrum point. I mean, did that really do all of this? And therefore, if you're following the logic of God's unfolding word here, it would not surprise you that the very next thing that he begins to talk about are three important proofs that the work of Christ achieved all of this on our behalf. The divine logic. We come before the Lord. So, how's all that come together? Lord, you mean I can, I can be an overcomer? I can, I can sort of wear the Nike symbol on my shirt? And he says, well, I'm not so crazy about that. But, but, yeah, you can be an overcomer. And more importantly, in your interactions with other believers and with the world, I want your life to be demonstrating that what is impossible burden to them is not burdensome to you. May that be true. May that be true. Our gospel message falls flat when we demonstrate the same inability of the unsaved. But if we can demonstrate not perfection, but that God's done some remarkable things, changed some things, don't you see what that does to the witness in this world? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a chance to be in your word this day. We're so thankful that you're a God who has chosen to speak and to speak in systematic, unfolding ways. Arguments developed. Things we can read and study rightly divide. Lord, help us to understand what you've been saying about being overcomers. To understand what you're saying about agape to understand what you're saying about what's really burdensome now for the believer. We need you to do that in us, Heavenly Father. Thank you ahead of time for it. Be with us in this day and in this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.